The truth is, we all have limits, right? Barriers, if you will. And some of us don't like hearing that. We don't like hearing that we're limited in maybe who we can be or what we can do. But the truth is, we are. We have moments in our life that we cannot do everything we want to do. But that's what's often great about the human spirit is it often rises above most obstacles. And we're able to accomplish more than we could imagine. I mean, there was a day when you think about some of the barriers that we've overcome as just humanity. There was a day that we didn't have penicillin to overcome common sickness, right? Uh, there was a day that uh, we didn't even think we could, we could get to the moon, right? There was a day we didn't, before we even thought about flying. There were, after that, there was the time we didn't know if we could even break the sound barrier. And even as running as humans, who would have thought we could break a, a four-minute mile? And that's what's encouraging about the human spirit is it tends to rise above. It tends to push through. But as great as the human spirit is, it is limited. It's limited. And that's why God's spirit is so important to us. We are wired to be victorious. We are wired to be overcomers. But we are wired that way so that by the power of God's strength, we might be able to grow and become the people that God has created us to be. Do you believe that? That's what transforms us more than anything else. It's the power of God. That's why we gather in places like this. So let me say a huge welcome to everyone that's here today, anybody that's joining us online and our friends in Urbana. And I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Mark chapter 5. Would you say Mark 5 with me? Mark 5, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We want to jump into this passage. We've been actually walking through this discussion about the book of Mark and this testimony that this young man has given, kind of a young pastor, if you will, convincing people and apologetic of who Jesus is. And we've been asking two questions to unpack that idea. And the two questions we've been wrestling with is this. First and foremost, is Jesus worth following? Everyone that comes in contact with Jesus, everyone who experiences Jesus, is having a decision to make whether they want to follow him or not. And the second one is this. If so, will you? And that's more of a general question for us because in a room this large, many of us are still maybe wrestling with our faith. We're questioning about what life is ultimately about. And it's a great place for us to continue to press into who Jesus is. And while we do that, we begin to understand more closely who God is because Jesus is God in flesh. Now, here's what's been happening. We've been walking through uh, the early chapters of Mark. We've had, actually have a bookmark that we've been giving out to kind of take Monday through Thursday to look at different passages and unpack uh, the pages of who Jesus is and kind of getting a, a context of what he's going through. And in Mark chapter 5, he, Jesus is running into people in some desperate situations, and they've become desperate people. And so what's beginning to happen is as Jesus has gone through teaching, as Jesus has gone through healing, as Jesus has gone through kind of reshaping the culture that he comes in contact with, people begin to gather, begin to surround him. And as we heard in our first few weeks, first two weeks of this discussion, we, we see crowds beginning to show up to a point that now it's beginning to impact his ability to travel, to speak, and to engage people on a personal level. Mark chapter 5 is like that. 
Now, what's interesting before we jump into our passage today is our passage today reflects a similar pattern in the chapter as what happened in Mark chapter 1. Now, we called Mark chapter 1 the two passages that we looked at, a, a woman with a fever and a man with leprosy, kind of sandwich passages that they were on one side or the other, and in between, there was this this halftime, if you were, where Jesus pulls away and Jesus pauses for a minute to regain some, some personal time between him and God. And as he pulls away, he then re-engages. And we called it a sandwich passage because both of the miracles are on the outside of this, this halftime, if you will. Now, what's intriguing is those are separated that way so that you can do a comparison contrast and you can see what are similar, but more than anything else, what's different about those two miracles. What's intriguing about this passage is it as well is going to be a sandwich passage too, but it is pushed much closer together so that you can see the similarities and the parallels that happen between them. And what we're going to see out of Mark chapter 5 is as Mark is writing out this passage, he begins with the tension of one miracle and goes directly to another miracle that happens and then comes back and completes the first tension of the miracle, hence the sandwich passage. Get what I'm saying? Everybody's like, yeah, I wonder what we're going to have for lunch. Yeah, that's not what I'm trying to say. Okay, okay. So let's look at this passage a little bit. Let's see how it kind of compares and contrasts, but let's see how it brings some parallels to life about what Jesus is doing in this moment and how Jesus transforms a person's life. Here's what it says. We're going to start in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. It says this. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him uh, while he was at the lake. Desperate people showing up again. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. We're going to pause there for a moment. Now here's the image that we get. A desperate father who wants healing for his daughter. Uh, we can just pause there for a moment, and there's a few men that are getting ready to grab a tissue. And that, that's the worst thing that we, we would think about is our, our children being in need and not being able to help them. And Jairus is a man of affluence and influence. Being part of the synagogue, he's someone who can shape a culture. He's got, he's got best friends, people of leverage that he can lean into that can help him get what he needs. And for whatever reason, there's been no cure for his daughter. So the one place he's going to is Jesus in anticipation that Jesus is who he's heard that he is and to see Jesus do what only Jesus can do. But it's a sandwich passage. And so Mark begins to insert another miracle so that you sit with this tension in the back of your mind about a father who's desperately hoping to find healing for his kid, okay? Then it says this in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Hear how it's kind of building a little bit? And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she, when she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd. She touched his cloak because she thought, if I, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. There's that word again, right? Immediately, her bleeding stopped. 
And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him. He turned around to the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see this people gathering against you, the disciples said. And you ask, Who touched you? Meaning like, isn't everybody getting bumped right now, you know? But Jesus kept looking around to see what, who had done it. And then, then the woman knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I, I, this, this passage is, is a beautiful passage. I mean, frankly, as you begin to unpack it, you, you, you begin to just hear the tenderness of Jesus through all this. You begin to see Jesus in his perspective, beginning to understand the great wounds and the hurts that people are bringing to him and just the overwhelming compassion that he has. Because uh, I know how I get when crowds get in around me, right? People start pressing in and bumping. The last thing I am is compassionate. There's no doubt I'm passionate, but compassionate has kind of gone out the window. You know what I'm saying? And here's Jesus in the midst of this, and it, it's just building and building and building, and it's continuing to be a, a larger crowd every time he begins to get somewhere. But this, this woman comes towards him for healing. Now, this is kind of a, a, an uncomfortable passage to talk about, because the woman has this discharge of blood that is not a part of her normal scenario. She's been bleeding for 12 years. One commentary says that her discharge of blood causes her to be discharged from society because she's a major bearer of impurity as a person. Isn't that what we've seen through some of these passages? People who are hurting or broken or sick have been discarded. They've been pushed out of the way. And yet... When Jesus is in their midst, they feel compelled to go towards him. They feel uh, this, this compelling desire to know him, to be with him. And Jesus obliges. This woman suffers physically every day. And with the signs of this decaying mortality that's going on in her life. We have, we have a young girl at the beginning that's dying. And we have another woman who's this walking, living dead, if you will. And I love how Jesus wraps up this passage. It's almost like Mark is trying to keep a, a, a phrase going. Because remember last week? Last week we talked about how people said, hey, your family's here. And Jesus says, well, my, my family is anyone who does the will of God, right? We jump into chapter 5 and we have a daughter that's hurting and this woman that comes to him, and what does Jesus call her? Daughter. The ultimate inclusion of family is family, isn't it? That you belong to us. But everywhere she's gone, everything she's done, she doesn't have the means that the other family has. She doesn't have the notoriety, but she has gone and leveraged everything of her life for healing. For 12 years. 12 years. She's fearing barriers that she cannot overcome on her own. And no doctor can fix her. No money can, can, can cure her. And there's no more time than now to find the healing. But also remember this. There's still a daughter waiting to be healed, right? So let's read on. Here's what it says in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking... Some people came up from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, Your daughter is dead. I say it like that, because isn't that how it would sound? 
I mean, they're on their way back. A father is hoping to get him, get Jesus to her, and everybody just comes, your daughter's dead, right? Imagine the pain of this. Why bother the teacher anymore, Jairus? Overhearing what was said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. People are crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Do you not get the irony of this? That one person believes in Jesus so much that he can fix everything, and the rest of the world scoffs at this opportunity. After he pulled them out, he, uh, he took the child's father and the mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went where the child was. He took them by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, there's that word again, right? The little girl stood up, began to walk around. She was 12 years old. How long, how long was our gal sick? 12 years. There's parallels happening. You understand what I'm saying? At the same time, they were completely astonished. Yeah, who wouldn't be? He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Why? Because things are building and building and building to the point that it's impeding Jesus, right? And he told her to give her something to eat. Yeah. What 12-year-old isn't hungry? You know what I'm saying? Like most of these passages, we see the graciousness of Jesus over and over and over again. And for the first two weeks, we've just laid into this graciousness of Jesus being ever-constant, ever-present But you begin to see this comparison contrast of how these two individuals are so different. One is rich, the other is poor. One is sick and dying, and the other is dead. One is known because of her family's place within the community. The other is a nobody within her community. Both are battling these purity issues where they've been outcast because of either their their bleeding issue or because of their death. So let's begin to see what happens. Because as you look at this passage, you begin to see the grace of Jesus, ever constant, ever present, always at work in a scenario, and the faith of individuals, not in themselves, but in the person of Jesus, begin to be headed towards a collision, right? And here's what I need you to know. That first and foremost, the grace of Jesus can break through to anyone. Over and over, we see this again, that God's grace breaks through whatever barrier, whatever obstacle, whatever scenario, God's grace is enough through the person of Jesus to break through that barrier. Whether they're rich or they're poor, sick or dead, known or nobody, or maybe like us, maybe we find ourselves trapped in our own impurity our own sin and consequences. And yet we need to be reminded that Jesus is in our midst. I mean, look at the grace of Jesus through this text just a little bit. He hears the distressed. He responds to the pain of the sick and the deceased. 
He has this authority that's over both sickness and death, and he conquers both sickness and death. And while we spent the last two weeks kind of unpacking this idea of God's grace, we can never stop talking enough about the lengths that Jesus will go to, the willingness that Jesus has to go and help others, his ability over power, with power over sin and death and disease. And friends, the grace of Jesus is, it's ever constant. It's always there. And in the midst of these two, two examples of, of sickness and death and disease, we see God's grace just permeating and piercing these moments of darkness. It's a constant peace in the presence of darkness. Do you know that? I mean, think about this for a moment. As great as God's grace is, as wonderful as we all may tip our cap to the grace of God, what is it that sparks these great miracles? I mean, Jesus didn't just go seek these people out and just wave a magic wand and pull his rabbit out of his hat, right? People pursue him. It's, it's two individuals with so much despair and so much concern that they would throw everything to the side just to get to Jesus, to allow Jesus to work in their lives. It's not a faith in the system. It's not a faith in the government. It's not a, even a faith in humanity itself. It's the belief that Jesus himself is the only one that can change their scenario. And that's what desperation does. That's what despair looks like. It clears the playing field of everything that has not worked in our lives. And we finally say, okay, God. Okay, God. Now look at these people. They're pursuing Jesus for an answer, a solution. They, they seek the impossible, the miraculous from Jesus. And ultimately, they trust Jesus to be who he is. Friends, barriers fall when grace and faith collide. It's in these moments, yeah, sure, God could just step in and fix it. But God allows us to be invited in to experience the miracle itself. But let's back this up a little bit. Do you remember who these people were before they had their faith in Jesus? Before they saw the miraculous? They were sick, they were dying, and they were desperate. So let's talk about desperation for a moment, can we? Have you ever been desperate? I mean, just in, in simple terms. I'm not, I'm not trying to get real heavy yet, right? But have you ever felt despair and desperation? I remember the first time I felt it. I was swimming at church camp, okay? We had this pool, and at church camp, they said, this is the shallow end, and this is the deep end, and this is the rope. And uh, being a good pastor's kid, I didn't listen to any rules, and I just did what I wanted to do. And so I'm in this pool, and I'm a young enough age, I shouldn't go to the deep end. But while everybody else is talking and hanging out, I get closer and closer to the rope, and eventually I lift the rope up, and I go underneath, and I can feel that the deep end kind of goes at an angle. It's not real quick, but it's gradual. And so I start tiptoeing out, tiptoeing out to the point where I get on, you know, like ballerina style. I got my toes still touching, you know, my head's above, and I'm going. And then all of a sudden it happens. I slip. I'm not a good swimmer at this point. I splish, I splash. I swallowed some water. I start... I start flailing, trying to figure it out, and eventually I get enough momentum that I grab onto that rope, right? 
And as an elementary kid, you know what you think almost happened? I could have died. I'd never felt desperation like that. Uh, then I went out with some friends on a boat on a lake, and they said, it'll be fun, right? You guys got invited to that event too? And we were going inner tubing. Yeah, yeah. So we get out there, and I got a hold of this rope, and we're kind of going back and forth, and we're hitting the waves. And eventually the, uh, the driver, being a godly person, cranks the wheel and makes a really large wave, you know what I'm saying? And I come flying around full speed, and, and I hit that wave, and I go flying in the air, and I hit the water, and there I am again. I splish, I splash, I swallow some water, and I think, I'm going to die. There's no rope. And I float to the top because I'm wearing a life vest. A life vest. And my vest did exactly what it's supposed to do. And friends, if you've experienced desperation, you know what it's like if you don't have a lifeline or you don't have a life vest. Are you getting where I'm going with this? You look at your marriage and you're just like, I, I, don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can get out of the deep end. You look at your checkbook and you know your phone won't stop ringing. You get a diagnosis that you did not have scheduled in this year's calendar, right? And in that moment... You make some clear choices about what you're going to lean your life into. And friends, can we be honest? For most of us, when stuff that shocks us hits us, we don't turn back to God first. Oftentimes we turn maybe to shopping or to a bottle or to going and having fun with friends. And we find the water just getting deeper and deeper. And while it may ease the pain for a moment, it does not save us. And as hard as we try, and as hard as we work, and as much effort as we put into it, it does not fix what ails us. And there may be some of you that are in here going, you know what? That's the only reason I'm even in this room today. Because if Jesus can't fix this, I'm not sure what does. Friends, that's what this is about. It's about when we turn our lives over to God with this complete trust that we believe that without a shadow of a doubt that God can work and do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And while it may not be an instantaneous miracle, it may be a journey that we know that only by the power of God's spirit could we be sustained. Only by the power of God's people can we journey through this. Only through God's word can we begin to learn and understand that life is built for us to be overcomers by the power of God's Spirit, not just, not just the effort of humanity. I mean, it reminds me of this collision that happens in Ephesians 2, right? For it is by grace that we have been saved, not for ourselves, but a gift of God. It's God's grace and our faith. And the eternal happens. I like what one commentator says about this when he speaks about Jairus and this woman who's bleeding. He says this, Jairus, the parent, and the woman who was ill did not come to faith after they were healed, but had a prior faith that led to their healing. Friends, in desperation, it's not enough just to hope 
or just to wait to see what Jesus may do. In moments of desperation, we either surrender fully to God or we hold on and hold back. So let me just unpack this idea of faith for a second. And let me talk to you about what what faith looks like in these passages. And I think first and foremost, we see faith exposes God's power at work in our lives. Faith does that. If grace is always present and ever constant, then it's like a light that shines Jesus at work already around us in our lives and in our relationship. Faith singles out these barriers and invites God's power in right there. Faith is sometimes bold and sometimes it's imperfect. Sometimes faith is brave and sometimes faith is even laced with fear. But what it does is it directs us to the strength of Jesus. So if your marriage is about to bust, have faith and pursue Jesus and see what happens. If, if an addiction has got you beat, then have faith to surrender in Jesus and see where Jesus might begin to transform you. If you're lost in your own sin and rebellion, then trust Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, his death, his burial. His resurrection, because that's what has already paid for our sins and gives us new life for all eternity. Second of all, faith empowers persistence in breaking through barriers. If you can't get through a barrier, uh, the same thing you do over and over isn't going to change it. It's faith that sometimes propels us to step up or to step out or to have that risky conversation or to do the things that you know are going to be impossible. But if God could be with you, only then... Only then might they still work out. In faith, this father steps out with the confidence to approach Jesus. It's in in faith that a woman begins to press through a crowd just to get to Jesus. Faith helps us face the barriers, and it points us to Jesus. And Jesus faces our barriers, and they fall. But last of all, faith is expressed through action. And at its core, it is something that is done. It moves forward. It acts out because of the belief we have in Christ. I mean, think about the last few passages we've looked at. Like a son with a sick mother, we see them restored. Like a man with leprosy, he sees himself healed. Like a group of friends who tear off the roof to get their friend to Jesus. Like a bankrupt man, even maybe in our world today, sees himself eventually, instead of being gripped by greed, Becoming a generous person or a bitter or prideful or angry person would see their character changed from within. Friends, it's important for us to understand that when grace and faith collides, barriers will fall. So let's move to our time of response. began to talk about this passage a little bit and how in this sermon alone, all the things that we've been leaning towards about grace are true as much as the weeks before. But this week really begins to to impact this idea that there is action to be taken in our lives. There is a faith response, if you will. And oftentimes in the early church, meaning after Jesus had died, been buried, rose again, When people were impacted by the grace of Jesus, they responded with a belief, with a faith that put them towards action. And that that normative response that we see all throughout the early steps of the church 
is a statement of baptism, right? Where people declare that who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, is the surrendering that we do of our lives, putting the old way to death, living in a new life of Christ. And maybe that's the faith step that some of us are thinking about even today. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to live like it, isn't it? It's one thing to say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I go to church. It's another thing to live that out as the people of God. Friends, we have a, we have a baptism Sunday that's coming. It's going to be in May. And while we've been doing baptisms already this year, and some will do them throughout the week or whatever, there are some of us in this room that have never made that declaration for themselves, right? You've never taken the moment to say, this is my belief. This is my faith. And I want to challenge you to go public in your faith. There are dads and there are mothers whose children look to you and say, what do you believe? Have you surrendered your life? There are students and friends who have shared their faith amongst each other and, and, and they wonder, can, can they stand up against the pressures that happen in school and life? Because the world that they're not a part of, that they're a part of is not for God. And they wrestle with, is this something I should submit my life to? Is this something I should surrender to? Friends, we're surrendering ourselves to Jesus so that we can become more like him. It's not by our human spirit. It's not by our strength. It's not by our behavior. It is the trust and the work that what Jesus did, he died for our sins. He paid for our death. He gives us life everlasting. He, he joins us into a revolution of love and forgiveness and compassion and service and generosity. And we begin to live our lives not for ourselves, but for God and God alone. And so maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, 2019 is a good year to change a lot of things. I mean, 2020 is coming and I'd, I'd like to see things more clearly, pun intended, like it, yeah. What if... What if May you decided? Friends, family, we're going public. We are not perfect. Matter of fact, that's why that's why I'm surrendering my life. We we can't do it on our own. And God didn't make us so that we would. So maybe. Maybe you'll put on your connection card that baptism is a decision that you want to step out in faith on. Maybe you'll go to our, our, our website. It's fcc-online.org forward slash baptism Sunday. And start making the decision today that you will surrender your life to God and go public with your faith before the world. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, we believe wholeheartedly that you, 
you can change us. Had some of us sit in this room today and whether externally or internally, we are weeping because we've been desperate. God, we almost drowned. We almost died. And the pain was so great that some of us, some of us even maybe wished we had. But God, you saved us. And we're alive and we're breathing and we did not drown. And so God wiped the foolishness away from our hearts and our minds and the rebellion that we so easily embraced and God change us. And may the depravity of our hearts and the cloudedness of our mind begin to be washed away the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. God, we love you. We do. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and ask you all to stand to your feet if you would now. And if you're new to first, we spend this time in response. We're going to sing a song of of testament, of, of prayer back to God. It's going to be this almost confessional, if you will. And for some of us, we will sing as loud as we possibly can. And for some of us, we'll be as quiet as we can because we will listen. We'll listen to what God is saying in this moment. But we make this moment to move, to respond, to take action of faith. And so you will see people that will come forward and they will pause in prayer today. Or you'll see people who believe in the sacrifice of Jesus that will go to the six tables that are around this room. And there is bread and there is juice. And it's the reminder that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's a new covenant, a new commitment that Christ took on himself, our death, our sin. And as we eat the bread and we drink the juice, we both commemorate and celebrate that our life is not by our ability, but by the transforming work of Jesus. And some of us will have these connect cards. We've made a decision where we want to, we want to step up towards baptism. There are four given response boxes in the room. And those connect cards can be placed there. Our tithes, our offerings. But I pray that you'd use this time to respond. And some of us will pull out our phones, not to jump on Facebook, but to use Give to respond, to help further fuel the mission and ministry of this church and the work of Jesus all throughout the world. But if you're new with us today, the songs will start and people will spontaneously move to the benches, to the tables for communion, to the boxes to respond. Or maybe just off to the side to pray for a moment. If you don't have the ability to move and respond, there are men and women who will be walking through with communion that will meet you there to serve you. But may we choose to sing. May we choose to listen. May we choose to pray and to give and to eat the bread and juice with a heart that says, God, our desperation has not gone. It's just changed more of you in my life and less of me.
Let's respond.